You're listening to Highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Nick Manin, Senior Policy Officer of the European Environmental Bureau. So I just selected a few blurbs from the introduction, which I might share with you just to to set the, the scene a bit about what it's all about. So I feel your pain, I would say. That's how I start. I feel your pain. You, me, we are all very sick and tired of either Corona itself or its impact on our lives. But I think you and I, are we not also tired of instability, insecurity more generally? There is this new virus, unpredictable lockdowns, but they are just the latest in a series of things thrown at us, it seems, from financial crashes to hurricanes or heat waves. And maybe the real tragedy is not that these shocks to our existence exist, but that we actually have a fairly good idea of where they come from who is largely responsible for them, what the alternatives are. And yet we seem to fail to change course. The harder question we have to ask is what did we do once we knew? And that's why I I wrote this book, because I think systemic change across these various crises is now possible. And it's, of course, needed for a long time. But now it's really possible. It's probably even fair to say that the time to reconstruct society to do a system reboot uh, sort of has been never as good now as it has been since 1945 when we came out of the second world war it is now as we are in such a deep crisis that we can finally conceive of a new world order and understand that we can leap from following our fears to following our hope and that the great healing of the natural world and the great healing of us humans our collective immunity can all start together simultaneously. And I think we shouldn't waste this opportunity to to work on that kind of great healing of of nature and society. And we can only do that if we work together and if we see the systemic changes that we we have to do. We cannot just return to normal because the old normal, it was broken. There was nothing normal about infinite growth on a finite planet with finite resources. It's common sense for anyone who understands basic functioning of the natural world that this great acceleration, as system scientists call it, has been taking us right to the brink through, for example, the climate catastrophe, but also mass extinction, conflicts over natural resources and so forth. But the good news, I think, is the neoliberal normal is not a law of nature. People and planet can thrive together and What we have seen in the last year is that this neoliberal normal is no longer considered the normal by institutions that have defended this idea for for decades. And they are now coming to terms with the idea that that's not going to continue. We can't just go back to what we were doing before Corona hit. And that's the opportunity. That's the good news from this crisis that we need to now build on because we are far from where we have to be, of course. But there is an opportunity. I think the response from governments to the Corona crisis shows that Our political arrangements, they are not set in stone. They can change dramatically in the blink of an eye. Nobody had expected such a fast change in 2020. But this top-down crisis control, it cannot replace a bottom-up process of systemic change. And that is where our work comes in and where we have to work together with youth and and with NGOs and unions and, and movements from all over the world as we need to build up the new world together through many ways. We love that opening line because it's so simple and yet it really gets to the core of what we we feel your pain. And that's the thing. I think that the pandemic 
and you're right, brought so many things that we'd been ignoring or preferring not to see right to the fore. And if one can think positively, we can mobilize very quickly under crises. And then we have to use these strong words, extinction, climate crises. I think you mm-hmm. point that out as well, rather than climate change. It almost mm-hmm, sounds kind mm-hmm. of positive, kind of nice. Change, yep. I need change. No, if we change the language, we change the way we think about it. I studied geography and geography is about the connections between humankind and natural systems. So you already have there your basis for understanding the natural world and the connections with how we operate our economies. But that doesn't mean that you immediately become a a hardcore activist chaining himself up to some oil station or something. I would say it came by little shocks like history. History also is not a gradual process. It also comes with sudden shocks like the fall of the Berlin Wall. And for me, maybe my experiences in in Nepal where I I did some studies, I did some volunteer work and I I was maybe directly confronted also with on the one hand global inequality issues and on the other hand opportunities coming from globalization as well for the Nepali people which were then the opposite of what we experienced from our side were more problematic issues like the moving of jobs and, and then seeing how people move away from their natural environment uh, where they were working and living in harmony for generations because the climate change didn't allow the, the next generation to stay anymore. And yeah, that became a topic for me. And then I started working for uh, environmental NGOs and then seeing through negotiations as well. I was in Rio in 2012 when the big agreement was made, which then led to the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, becoming the global agenda which is supposed to then address our global problems. But as I was there in, in this deep in this process, I quickly sensed, and, and we were lucky enough that the Belgian delegation allowed the NGO people really in the room when the negotiation happened. I, I, I quickly sensed like, this is not going to solve our problems. This is an agenda which was really dominated by Brazil, China, India, and which is very much focused say, still on growth and, and which is from their perspective, maybe what they need. But it's clear, like, this agenda doesn't go far enough. And we are seeing it already. I mean, we're not on track to meet the SDGs. And it's a very simple reason. SDG 8 is an SDG that says that all countries need economic growth. That's still just not longer possible. So we need bigger alternatives. So I've been then focusing my attention on, well, there was this degrowth community within the academic world, where it was very small 10 years ago, people from the academic world, economists saying, actually, like, we need degrowth. I was like, what's that? And and got into that and then realized, well, this is something really different. It's The challenge is how to translate this into workable policy options that can be explained to a wider public. So I kind of specialized from there into more systemic changes than what the things like the SDG have to offer on us. And, and now I'm basically a paid uh, rebel, <laughs> somebody who's paid to poke holes in the military, military industrial complex, which is which kind of a, a, a nice thing to do and try to unpack these complex alternatives in economic terms for a wider audience through books, articles, opinion pieces and policy positions like a post-growth future, which is the politically correct term for what the academics call degrowth, is really a, a positive future where you plan for the reality that you cannot grow infinite on, on a finite planet. And if you plan for it and you manage this well, you can actually create even more well-being for more people than in the current system, which is just headed for, for disaster. And that then gave me new inspiration um, to see that actually it's a positive alternative. So you see the 
momentum going from first academics 10 years ago to NGOs, us, to the European Parliament, to the European uh, Environment Agency, to some people in the Commission even, and not everyone. But you see the momentum growing for, okay, we need something really different. And this is not a capitalism, communism, black, white, zero, one discussion. This is much broader because growth is, is in both capitalism and communism. This is a, not a left-right issue. But if you look at it historically, we have 5,000 years of money and depths and, and economy in that sense as humanity. But we only have 200 years in which growth is important and only 50 when growth is above everything else. And these are the last 50 years where we have placed our protections of people and nature on the altar of this God that we call growth, the, the neoliberal God, that they, they just elevated it to an even higher level. And that's the same period of the Great Acceleration where, where things went south quite soon. But it's, again, it's not a nature law. This is a recent thing. And this recent thing, this recent theory has had its time, which has caused a lot of damage. But now with this crisis, even the IMF, even the economists are saying we're not going to go back to the neoliberal era. And they were defending this era for decades. So I have hope <laughs> that maybe we can now transition to something maybe like a well-being era where countries are already saying we want to be a well-being economy. And like New Zealand telling every ministry, tell us how you're improving the well-being of the New Zealand people. Every ministry. So that means the well-being has become the, the God who rules over the others. There are countries like Bhutan who have 30 years of experience in doing that. They just call it gross national happiness. And by the way, with great success, they've raised life expectancy. They have reduced poverty in record ways and they are carbon neutral. They absorb more emissions than they emit. So it's just to say that it's really possible to do things differently. Small countries have experience. Bigger countries are trying it out right now. The debate in Europe is hot on this topic. I think in the US, there is also some movement around, for example, this new Green Deal. So yeah, there are good things happening and I'm quite hopeful. You did mention that you kind of have to go beyond even traditional economics at its core. You know, I was in my master's just a year ago, I was taking classes that really emphasize these traditional economic policies. And I was frustrated because I didn't really see what you're mm. talking about kind of be incorporated into the curriculum. And then also, you know, what would you to that traditional economics that says too much regulation, like environmental regulations, mm. will just mm. hinder businesses mm. from that necessary growth and innovation, mm. leading to lower GDP and, and ultimately that lower quality of life? These, these are the kind of lock-ins in our system that we need to get beyond a lock-in means like we've set something up long time ago and we stick to it for reasons usually of defending certain vested interests people who want to keep it like that but there is a whole movement in the world like reading economics who want to change the curriculums of the economy classes worldwide with things like prosperity without growth from Tim Jackson or with the donut economy from Kate Roward. She speaks uh, together with me as well, Kate, in a documentary, The 25% Revolution. If you Google that, you'll see a 20-minute documentary using other economic models for teaching and policymaking. I mean, in that same documentary, you'll see that the donut economy model from Kate, it's applicable. Brussels is now trying it out. Tokyo is looking at it. Amsterdam has some experience with it. You know, it's not like some wishy-washy just imagination. It's rather that these better economic systems, they, they don't just come from themselves by just arguing, by just reasoning, because there are always vested interests who are going to lose 
out if we go for this well-being economy or donut economy. These are usually the most deep-pocketed people <laughs> who are going to lose the fossil fuel industry. And they pay merchants of doubts. They pay scientists to, to raise, to, to continue teaching or making papers which are putting doubt into this idea that, yeah, decoupling debunked, for example, when we published that, we got also a backlash of people trying to to say that the study was flawed, but the study wasn't flawed. It was backed up by many other people. We basically proved that you can't have green growth forever. You can't, but it's still being teached. So using that study as a student and waving it maybe to your professor, it might already help. Like, have you seen this? Making actions towards their university. What we have seen also like in universities worldwide is a divest movement. I mean, that's another model where, where students have come together saying to their university, we can't keep investing our funds into fossil fuels. You're teaching us, but you're destroying our future. How can you do both, you know? And they have been successful in, in removing billions, if not trillions, from investments into fossil fuel industry. Well, that was student power that made that. And the same student power can change how the economy is being taught all over the world. I have a little story to tell about France and nuclear. So half a century ago, France had 200 uranium mines in France. And they dug up their own uranium, which they needed for their own nuclear power. But after a while, people got sick, people protested. There was a lot of pollution from these uranium mines. And then legislation came and new norms came to protect the people and the environment. And in the end, all the uranium mines in France have closed, all 200. And there is still money being used to try to clean up some of the sites and much more money needed to clean up much more of the sites. That's the battle they are having now is, is, is to clean up the, the mess from the uranium mines. However, while all the uranium mines have closed, France still has massive amounts of nuclear energy and power. Most of the electricity, by the way, also in Belgium, comes from nuclear. So what has happened then? We have exported the problem. We have exported the problem to Niger, where you have this massive uranium mine from French state company, which has grown in these same 50 years, with a city of 200,000 people around this mine, just because of the mine in the middle of the desert. And one-fourth of the houses in this city is too radioactive to live in, according to norms in France. People get cancers, there is no running water, there is no electricity. People are almost enslaved to work in these mines there so that France can keep using its uranium for their nuclear energy. So what we have done, we've exported our pollution to what the World Bank in a secret memo calls the underpolluted countries, which is a terrible name for countries like Niger, where the state company Areva, French state company for nuclear energy, is four times bigger than the country Niger. So you can imagine who runs the show in that country regarding setting up regulations or letting people of Niger protest. No, it's not, it's not going to work because this one company is four times bigger. So France didn't solve its nuclear energy problem. And they also nuked uh, lots of Polynesian islands with their testing for nuclear energy. And that goes against maybe a certain logic of these industries are of national strategic importance or you can't do that because it's bad for GDP. But actually, why? I mean, if you look at the whole maybe the well-being of people is better off, first of all, through energy reductions where we can. And then if we don't have enough, then we should maybe look at, well, who are the really big users? And can they maybe be asked to do an extra effort uh, or forced to do an extra effort? Because I believe in 
like governments just at some point need to take action. If, if we just leave it to the free market, then we see what happens. Then, then we get everything we see now from climate chaos to corona. Yes, exactly. I think that it has to be in tandem. One, live within limits, redefine mm. our limits and, and our real needs. We now have more potential through this internet and these international networks is there, but it needs to be harnessed. It needs to be identified, recognized. We are still far apart. I mean, we don't always know who is fighting on what front where. But another thing we did is we made a map of all the people fighting in the world against one company, Chevron, who had all these conflicts with people in Ecuador, other people in Romania. And they, the people in Romania didn't know about the people in Ecuador. But they were actually both facing the same corporate warfare strategy. And by bringing them together and learning from each other, they were able to then exchange on strategies for, for fighting back. So it's about connecting these isolated cases with each other, helping them, giving them capacities, bringing activists and science together. I think that's also a big one. And students, you know, you need young people motivated to get active in some kind of difficult struggle because these things are difficult. They are not making your day bright. If you look at what Chevron does in Ecuador, it's, it's really painful. So you need, I think, the energy of young people. You need local grassroots activists and then you need experts or legal experts like this lawyer. You mentioned the court case in the Netherlands who can then help these activists to strengthen their case. And by the way, I think another thing I wanted to certainly mention because I think this is mainly for young people the way I learned is there are a lot of negative energies around fighting these big, powerful players. And it's sometimes hard, you know, to keep up psychologically, to keep up with it. So what you also need to do, I think, is just some fun nature-linked activities. I mean, community farming is fun. You just have a community of people, hands in the ground. We have this weekend a party with a campfire and music and a buffet and just coming together. And, you know, these positive energy things, local, are, are also important to keep going. It's just, for me, it's like my life lesson maybe is for me is a yin and yang thing. I, I keep engaging in these local fun environmental things, but I don't have the illusion that just going to a community farm is going to make all the other problems go away. But I thank positive energy there which I then have as a reserve when I'm dealing with these more powerful struggles with Chevron and with big oil in general, which are hard psychologically. So go back in the weekend to nature, to communities. You know, nature is therapy. Nature is the cheapest therapy that's out there. Just connect with forests, with trees. To that's a, it's a powerful, important message. We do need to restore ourselves as much as we need to restore the natural world. Yeah reconnect with the soil and with the earth and the forest and the farm and so forth whenever you see some opportunity to do so ideally together with other people because that's when you can share your emotions and that's also therapy in a way you know if you share these anxieties that you have around the world system collapsing or about big oil sharing is already the beginning of caring together about this you're not alone in this fight you know exactly i mean we're pushing with this war on nature as you call it uh, a war on wildlife and we're pushing animals outside of their natural habitats that this has all sorts of repercussions and, and yep. also the cruelty to animals so it's positive to see that there are a lot of these alternatives and that's the thing you know in the last decades we've like exported the ugly part of the economy we don't see it and we don't want to see it but if it's back in our face, then we think harder, you know, is it really what I want? These are the consequences. So in that sense too, relocalizing the food system is an opportunity to 
face up, get to reality of our food system and not just be the hypocrites that we are now, where we don't like the, the way they are treated, the animals, but we still go to McDonald's. Exactly. We, we want to distance it. As you say, we've been outsourcing for far too long. So we have the illusion that there are no consequences to our behaviors. And yeah, uh, we yeah, have to bring yeah. it back home and really understand. I want people to go discover your books, your latest turning point, front lines. Before 2008, we were saving banks. Now we are saving people, right? So maybe this time we can, instead of making the same mistake that we did after 2008, especially after 2011, when the banking crisis became the national sovereign debt crisis, then we started austerity. Okay, now it's it's time for the pensioners and the ill people and the unemployed to have less money so that we can pay off the debt. And, and the poor people were hit twice, basically. First time when they didn't get the money from the bailouts, and the second time when they had to pay back for the debts. Well, there is hope that, and we're going to try everything that we have, to avoid making that mistake now. Because you can write off from states to the European Central Bank. It's a very different thing than a household debt where you think like, yeah, you, you make a debt, you need to pay it back. Well, money is just a, a figure on a computer. It's just a social agreement. It's just you tap. It's not even printing anymore. It's just you tap a zero extra and you have it. And nowadays, 95% of money is made by private banks who just make money because somebody wants to buy a house, for example. But that's not what the economy needs right now. We don't just need that as a solution. No, we need states investing in the right things. And if we come to that collective decision, that's what we need, which is different from the neoliberal ID. We also taxed uh, the rich with 90% income tax on the highest uh, income earners. That was normal in France and in UK and in much of Europe for like 30 years between 1950s and 60s and 70s. And the state deficit dropped from 200 to 30%. And the state was then able to invest in all the things that created the golden period of the 60s and the 70s of welfare for everyone. And now we can do the same with not just welfare, but well-being as the focus. And the opportunity is really there because it's about well-being, our health. It's about our health, this crisis. So let's now push on and make sure that we are not again forced by the neoliberal ideologies to pay back this state investment, is a better name than TEPT, by, by saving on all the things that the, the poor people and the average people actually need like better and more hospitals, better and more public transports, better and more schools. That's what we now need for our well-being. And it has a value which we need to name, basically, and not just ignore. So yeah, there is a lot of work to do, but there is an opportunity now. And if you want to know more, there's, again, like there are 17 different debates on various aspects of fiscal issues, monetary issues all over Europe, fiscalmatters.eu. Yes. And, you know, what, what do you tell your children? You know, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, that's a big question. And it's a hard one because I struggle with this as my 12 year old is becoming more aware and knowledgeable about what's going on in the world. And yeah, at some level, you try to protect her from the things I write about in my books, which are often quite, I mean, hard to deal with psychologically and I want to give her this innocence for a while on the one hand to just grow up without having all to worry about the weight of of the world's problems on her shoulder and on the other hand I mean she does watch some of the yeah news and she reads things and so you do want to give her something about what's going on 
but you filter a bit. And and what I do then is is like when I spoke earlier about this need for myself to connect with nature, to, to feel it, to to love nature, and then look at it differently than just by the ratio and the figures and the facts, you know, by just appreciating going in the mountains for a long distance walk and then coming at a high altitude and then seeing this horizon with layer after layer of new mountains and and sun setting, you know, it, it creates an emotion, a feeling, which is a hook in your brain to which you come back. And if you don't have that, it's just figures. It's just distant. And so what I did, for example, with our oldest, we went for a 1,000 kilometer hike when she was a baby, even when she was a baby, to start from the beginning with walking close to her parents in carrying back, just hearing the rivers, just the birds and the sun, if you have the, this connection, if you're just growing up in the, just in an apartment in the city and then learning about it from podcasts and news. No, I mean, stop listening to me, just get out there. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.